and welcome to Combat Thoughts. I'm Robbie. I'm Lee. And I'm Alex. We're going to take a deeper look at culture and philosophy behind martial arts. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Combat Thoughts. If you're weirded out by a new voice, well, that's because it's Alex. This week we're talking to Guy Ramsey, the head of Grip House MMA up in Glasgow, a gym which is responsible for producing some of UK's top MMA and Muay Thai talent. He is a lifelong martial artist and has been involved in the sport of Thai boxing and MMA for many years now, and as such he's gathered a lot of experience. Uh, in this episode, we talk about the history of the gym, uh, some of the traditions within the gym, medieval MMA, and many other topics. So stick till the end, and we hope you enjoy. So today we're joined by Guy from uh, Grip House Gym up in Scotland, sunny Scotland today, actually. Um, so thanks for joining us, Guy. I appreciate spending some of your uh, sunny afternoon with us. <laughs> All good, all good. Good. So I think in the interest of what we always do when we have guests on, the fun old story of what got you into martial arts? Everybody's got to be a bit tapped to get into martial arts. Kind of where did you start? Kind of your timeline, your progression, kind of how you went from starting to fighting through to kind of coaching. I think it'd be really good to cover that first off. Okay, wow. Right, so given that I'm really ancient, uh, stop me if I'm talking too long. Um I saw Monkey, The Water Margin, and Bruce Lee possibly in the space of a week when I was really young, like 10 years old or something. I was like, whoa, (laughs) what is this? I I had no idea people could do things like that with their bodies. It it just got me. It just absolutely got me. Um, So I had to kind of stop and start. It was really hard to find martial arts clubs. like boxing, unless you're from a boxing area, you couldn't even find a boxing gym. And there was only judo or karate. When I started, so as a tiny, skinny, shrimp, 10-year-old, I went to a judo class and got ran over by a massive giant man. I was like, I, I know if I'm up for this. <laughs> I, I he was doing this either. I, so I, I kind of pretended to do martial arts for a couple of years, got an absolute kicking when I was 13 on a railway bridge I, by two fine young gentlemen from a, one of our tougher neighbourhoods. And I swore blind from that point, I would never let somebody do that to me again. And that's when I threw myself into training uh, from that point on. So having been fascinated with the movement of like the Kung Fu crew uh, to actually deal with the reality of being exposed to violence, I two and two made four and off I went to try and find ways of training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just been a, an experimental journey since then. I've always looked for evidence uh, to back things up. I, I was, there was something deeply unsettling about the sensei mentality of this has been passed down, therefore accept it. Um, I found that a little too much like religion. I am pretty much a profoundly deep atheist. I I think having faith is an amazing thing. I would love to have it, but I've thought too much about it and I don't. Martial arts for me was the same. I was looking for evidence, um, which ultimately led me towards, in terms of a striker, Muay Thai. Mm -hmm. Um, It just seemed to answer way more questions than everything else. I'm not knocking anything else. Everything's, everything's valid in what it's trying to achieve. Like I love my time doing karate, but the way karate was competing was for no contact. So mm-hmm. the validity in the system for me just started to disappear. You know, uh, Guys were getting disqualified for 
giving somebody a bleeding nose. Mm. I, and then you look at Muay Thai and you're like, why didn't you give the guy a bleeding nose? You know, so it's, uh, and it validates the techniques. Um, I guess that's what I was looking for. So karate through Shirinji Kenpo, I really enjoyed my time doing that to kickboxing, ultimately to Muay Thai. And then 1993, it all happened at the UFC. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu, grappling, all the strikers really confused. What just happened there? Yeah. Uh, and that, yeah, after that, it, it became this pursuit of, oh my God, you can combine like judo and, and wrestling. And uh, these Brazilian guys are like rocking it with whatever they're doing. Um, as all the Luta Livre guys were like, we did it first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, yeah, but they didn't make the deal with Zufa. So yeah. <laughs> so yeah, long story short, um, I went to a seminar with Master Toddy and Master Woody in about 93, 94. Um, and that was a game changer for me. That was people trying to hit stuff and each other as hard as humanly possible. And yeah. bingo, that, that, that was it. Hook, hook, line and sinker from there. He's quite an eclectic guy, Mr. Toddy, uh, Master Toddy as well, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's funny, man. He's funny. Uh, I remember when I... I was over for the, the UFC in Vegas in like 2005. I, it was Tito Ortiz uh, Belfort. I, and I, I was like, I'm going over, I'm going to go train, I'm going to go to Tony. Tony's like, ah, oh, Scotland, I remember you. And he just laughed and went, I'm much fatter now. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, dude, Vegas life is sitting you, man. That's it, yeah, that's the sign you're living the good life. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's quite a legendary figure, actually. You hear about yeah, well, there was many, like Todd, many people. Toddy, Woody, and Sken, you know, the, uh, as much as like the way they were doing Muay Thai was, was quite kind of different to hmm. how they were doing it in Thailand. They, they, everybody doing Muay Thai in Britain particularly owes them some kind of lineage debt somewhere along the line, I think. Um, Toddy and Woody had their own style. Sken had his very uh, athletic, acrobatic style. Um, hmm. But they, they've... They train some hard guys, you know, as much as uh, people like, oh, Sken, Taekwondo, anti-boxing. You look at the original guys, Sken's men's, like Oliver and Humphrey Harrison, uh, Phil Nurse, those guys, I mean, they, they were amazing fighters. Absolutely amazing fighters. And Phil Nurse has done really well. He's He carved himself out the gym, the lat in New hmm. York. He's in New York, he, isn't he? He got GSP. And you're, some... you're a guy from Bolton mm-hmm. and you can set up a fight gym in New York City, man, what, what can you not achieve? That, that, was a, that was a real thing for me. I went to train with Phil. I, I did kind of a week's work doing some security stuff in New York. And I, I was like, oh, man, I've got time off. I'm going to go, I'm going to go train with Phil Nurse. I, and he was really cool. Um, and it was him that was like, guys, set up a gym in Glasgow. That's your hometown. I did, I, I'm from Bolton. And I, look what I've done here. And it was, it was this oh, kind wow. of big jaw-dropping moment of, yeah, why, why can't I do that? Mm. I, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of one of the, the main kind of drives to get the get the grip house uh, off the go. Oh, wow. That's so, so we're into even origin stories of the grip house, which is awesome. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's funny really you say cool. about Master Skin as well, because I grew up in a gym where he was trained by Master Todd, and then I did basically every interclub at a Master Skin gym. So it's kind of, you're kind of taking me back to being a young 16-year-old kid doing interclubs every weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, it's great. I mean, Matt, I've got so much respect for Master Sken. He's one of the most phenomenal athletes in martial arts I think I've ever witnessed doing his stuff. Uh, I remember just... growing up and seeing um, Paul Kapowitz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember him. And I was being like, how the fuck can you move like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> man. 
I jump and spin and twist and yeah. dive. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome. So, okay, so we we kind of um, I think that's a that's a really great overview. Thanks for that. Um, so if we, so so between, so I'm interested in. Um, I think for for in terms of Muay Thai, um, I understand definitely. Um, I I had a very similar um, sort of epiphany, let's say that I started with karate and I had the same thing where um, I was, I was training Shotokan. So, so it's no contact basically in, in, in the Kumite. Um, And then I was like, you know, Muay Thai seems like the the thing to go, but when did, so you you mentioned something about the, the uh, MMA, how, how did you then transition into wanting, because I know like you, you trained me in Muay Thai. So you obviously still coach Muay Thai. But when did the sort of MMA part of you start and how, how did that um, get more incorporated? So the very first gym I competed out of, Strikeforce Gym, was based in Glasgow. Uh, and it was run by a fairly successful Glasgow kickboxer, uh, Duncan Early James. Um, and he was beginning to push more and more towards... MMA, except it wasn't called that then. It was like Pancras or No Holds Barred, Valley Tudo, all those kind of names were getting thrown around. Um, and we literally had no idea what rule set we were competing in. <laughs> it was like, right, guy, you're fighting uh, you're fighting Thai boxing tonight. Ian, Ian, you're fighting Pancras. Uh, Scott, you're fighting extreme wrestling against, I know some guy, I think his name's Ian Freeman. Uh, yeah. All right, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, but we realized that we, we just didn't have the grappling background going on at all to survive these encounters uh, and then this guy turned up um, who did a flying armbar and we just went what? Uh, and that was Paul McVeigh over from Ireland for the first time obviously looking for a strong striking gym to complement his already fairly cool jiu-jitsu because uh, he'd been travelling down to train with John Kavanagh as much as possible uh-huh, uh, okay. he's got his own kind of maverick style on it and then uh, Paul was competing by the time they got around to calling MMA, Paul was competing in MMA. So me and Paul hooked up. Uh, that was the birth of Paul was like the, I guess the kind of the birth of the DNFT, like Dinkin Ninja Fight Team, um, which is another kind of like old school name. It's like pretty much pioneer Scottish MMA. Um, the teams now take it kind of covers three different gyms, just the natural like kind of people going off to set up their own thing. So Paul McVeigh, Joined in with the Dinky Ninja crew who are from Dumbarton on the west side of Glasgow. I, I was working with Paul. Then one of my guys hooked up with another dude called James Doolan at college. Uh, James Doolan I, has gone on to become one of the most successful MMA coaches in Scotland. Um, and we, we were all just trained train together. It wasn't a deliberate attempt to create a, a gym as such. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's how the MMA thing happened uh, a whole bunch of strikers got together with a whole bunch of grapplers it was a kind of fairly natural right. thing to do it's, um, it sounds quite similar to like the roughhouse uh, story yeah. where it, it was kind of a bunch of guys doing MMA and then it was kind of a gym but then it wasn't um, yeah. yeah like we were, a, we were a team without a gym right 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 so we were competing but we were training out of uh Cali, Cali Uni, just up the road from uh, your uni. Cali yeah. Uni was a public club rather than a student club. So we we're training out of there. We we're training out of gangster 
filled boxing gyms. Uh, just, just, I'm actually part. <laughs> I need to get one just parked outside it at the moment. Uh, um, so, you know, like scout halls, community halls, but it, it just became more and more obvious that we're competing against guys that clearly got access to full-time facilities. Mm. Uh, and it was, it was the one thing that was holding us back. As much as there was some, like, ridiculously high-level maverick uh, ability going on and the cross-pollination of all, the, all these people, we didn't have a place to do it, and we didn't have a place to do it all the time. Um, mm. So eventually I kind of bit the bullet. I hired a, like a tiny little unit, and it was about 850 square feet. If you know your square feet, that's tiny. <laughs> uh, you could ba- barely play table tennis on it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was the first grip house. So it was me and Paul and James. Uh, Tommy Young was there at the start. Uh Mark Connor jump shed, Dean Riley was there. All these guys that have become like proper, like kind of cool MMA people. Uh, yeah. we're, we're, we're all there either at the start or within the first kind of couple of years. Um, after about uh, six weeks in that building, we're like, ah, oh, shit, this is too small. But we weren't advertising. It was literally we, we went ourselves just looking for a place. But we were looking around going, fucking 30 people turned up. Do you know any of these people? We're like, no. Take <laughs> the money off them and show them what to do. We're like, all right, okay. Hey. And yeah, it just kind of morphed into, into a gym. And then we looked, the place we're in now, we've been in for the last, what, 15 years. Hmm. Uh, so that that was that was really scary, signing the lease in that building. Um, I bet. It's, so it's a two-level building, right? It's two-level. We, we moved in the first level first. That was 5,000 square feet. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like I was trying to do this lease while I was on honeymoon with my missus. Uh, and it was just like, shit, how, how are we going to fill it? But... Mm-hmm. Echoing the words of a very, very good man, a RIP, very unfortunately, Carl Tanswell, whose influence in UK MMA cannot be underestimated. Mm-hmm. Carl Tanswell from Manchester SPG. Carl said to me, he was up uh, training, and he's like, "Guy, people are like farts. You know, they'll just fill to swell the size of the room." Yeah. <laughs> I think what he meant was, uh, you know, like uh, Rome wasn't built in a day or, or build it and they will come and all that kind of heroic stuff. Yeah. But he just put it a lot better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Spot on, really. And there's there's the thing as well, isn't it? Like the absence, of, like if you come down to London where I live, the kind of gyms dime a dozen. If, in Scotland, if there's a shortage and it's there's enough people, kind of young men especially, who want to get in a place somewhere and start punching each other you you can always get enough people to jump in i think it's just it needed somebody to take a plunge right yeah yeah pretty much like um i mean again i need credit for credit to you but right what here's one of my bugbears in martial arts revisionist history for people trying to distance themselves from people they know or things they've done or people they trained with i one of the gyms that used to get get it quite tight from the competing community uh, were the Krauss brothers. Now, the Krauss brothers were the first people to actually really have a full-time cross-training in martial arts gym mm. in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And I know quite a few people have had contact with them and came to us through them. Um, and they could always coach girls, teach people to move. So as much as we sell the grip house, there was something before us. Uh, and you have to give Steve and Mike Krauss the credit that they had the, the savvy in the mid-80s to late 80s to really embrace the whole JKD, Dan Inosanto, Eric Paulson vibe. Uh, yeah. And they they got they went down that road. Um, so we weren't the first, we were MMA pioneers. Um, yep. John Craig, I guess, is the Muay Thai pioneer mm-hmm. uh, to a, a greater or lesser extent in the West Coast of Scotland. 
Um, so yeah, but, but so, I mean, you guys made your own sort of waves in the Muay Thai space in Scotland, I would say. Um, the gym is quite well known for its Thai, Thai, fight, thai boxing fighters. Um, yeah. And it's quite interesting, I think. Um, I mean, you even created your own event, right? Um, your your own uh, sort of fight fight night. Am I am I saying this right? Um, the uh, the event which is in the um, I can't remember the venue now, but you oh, guys used Aud- to. Aud- Audemore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Aud- Audemore, Audemore is a strange one. I, it, it's become like a legendary show. Um, yeah, yes. it's, it's not that big, but it's it's a beautiful, beautiful building. A, it's a converted church that get turned into like nightclubs and bars, but it's it's kind of quite high end. Mm. You know, like the 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 ceiling's got this beautiful artwork on it. So even if you get KO'd and you're looking up at the heavens, you're, you're, <laughs> gonna, you're, you're dead and alive at that stage. Hey, but I think it lent itself to this incredible atmosphere because you can kind of shoehorn. I need to be careful who's watching this now. <laughs> not, not the fire regulation people. You can shoot about 400, 500 people into a, a fairly small like venue. And calling it a church hall is not doing it any justice. It's, it's beautiful. Right, um, right. And we do the kind of the Thailand thing. Like, if you're a C-class fighter, you're sitting by ringside waiting to go in. You don't get your big walk-in. You know, that, that's for the A-class folk that have, like, earned their... They've earned their walk-in. Mm. Uh, you get in, you prove it, you get out, the next fight goes in. So... Because we don't make, here's a secret, we don't make money at the bar. Therefore, we have utterly no interest in eking out a show to become an internable bore because right. you're trying to soak up the bar profits. Um, we've had eight A-class fights and seven C-class fights done in Dustin in three and a half hours. Wow. So that never happens. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, impressive in itself. To, to be fair, there's a high rate of knockouts in that show. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say. That maybe helped, but uh, you got to leave people wanting more. As a promoter, you need to leave them wanting more so they come back. Yeah. You, you, you want it to be the show that fighters want to be on. Uh, mm. And it, it definitely did become that show. Um, having had like trial and errors in previous venues where you've had a great show and then the guy that owns the venue happens to be one of the hardest guys in Glasgow comes up and went, aye, son, we've got your ticket money and you're not having any of it. Uh, stuff like that gets a bit often. Um, so oh, gosh, when we yeah. finally got to and more, we're like, oh, this is nice. Uh, and we've had, we've had some brilliant tear-ups in there. Some absolute class, class fights. Um, and isn't, um, isn't one of your coaches uh, like a security manager or, or, or a manager of OMO? <laughs> yeah, that kind of helps. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, um, Uncle T, Uncle right? T. Uncle I'm T. I'm not going to say his full name. Uncle T uh, yeah. is one of, our, one of our fighters, picked up the STBA middleweight title. Uh, and then. Brilliant coach as well. I got coached by him. I have to give him a shout out. He's a brilliant coach. Yes, he's really cool, man. He's really cool. Uh, I, one of the good guys, but one of, one of the bad good guys. Yeah, don't mess with Uncle T. <laughs> One of the good guys. You're glad he's your friend and not nobody else. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. So the the other the other interesting thing about the Grip House that I'm I'm very curious because while we're still kind of on the topic of of Muay Thai, um, we will absolutely go into MMA and and the rest. But I'm very curious about the Captain's Tracking Sword. What is the history oh. behind that? Oh, okay. So maybe so, for people that don't know, like what, what is the Captain Strachan Sword and then the, the story yeah. behind it? So Captain Strachan Sword has pretty much become the most important 
trophy, if you like, award in the gym. Um, even one of our guys who's like a world title holder is like, that sword is way more important to me than any world title could be. So uh, one of our guys, one of our fighters uh, decided to quit office life because it was driving him mental and become a Royal Marine. Uh, he became, uh, passed out Limston, became an officer, uh, became a captain in the Marines, um, Big Mike Strachan, just a lovely, lovely man, a proper team player. I think it's probably the, bit, the biggest reason we started to do this. Now, when Mike was passing out, um, the Marine of the Year gets given a, like, a ceremonial sword. Uh-huh. And we decided, you know what, we're going to give Mike a Scottish basket-hilted broadsword as a sign of our uh, respect for what he'd achieved. Uh, and also because he was a cool human being. Um, so on his pass-out day, uh, me and some of the guys from the gym were fortunate enough to be invited by his family down to Limston. And we gave him the sword, and the big man was absolutely like over the moon about it. Um, the the terrible bit comes in now is Mike is no longer with us. Mm. Uh, Mike was involved in a horrific RTA with his sister, and it doesn't get worse than that for the rest of the fa- rest of his family. So we were like, Fuck, "What can we do? What can we do? What can we do? We need to keep Mike's memory, but more the celebration of his attitudes as a human being." alive how, how are we going to do this and his family uh, the awesome abby roddy uh, his mom and dad and his sister kirsty gave us back the sword say can you do something with this and we were like oh yeah yes we can so the first thing we did is we made some t-shirts and we sold them and raised a thousand pounds to the erskine hospital for a uh, veterans um and then we decided to present the sword every year uh, to a worthy candidate. Now, it wasn't about the best fighter in the gym. It wasn't about that. It was like, who's put in the hardest shift? Who's mm. kept everybody else going? You know, like, not somebody that went on to get, like, 18 wins and zero losses, uh, but who was there? Who was holding the pads when nobody else could hold the pads? Who dragged themselves in after their fight with a broken arm and still managed to do some kick sparring? Mm. Who just encouraged everybody just to keep going that extra mile? Um, and it became the embodiment of that. I, That's amazing. Uh, that kind of will to keep going, that will to keep improving, but bring everybody with you. Right. I, that became the award of the sword. And, you know, in some, some years it's been so close with people that ran and give it to one and leave somebody else. We've just not, we've just not awarded it. We've just kept, not nope, nope, we're keeping it back. Uh, or some years maybe we didn't have a particularly good year as a, a team overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're like, nope. So it only goes out to the, I guess, the, the the very, very deserving. The right person. The, the only it's, the right it's, person. Our, it's our thing, you know, it's, it's only ever going to be within the gym. Like, nobody else is ever going to get it. So it's not important to anybody else other than folk in the gym. But it keeps it keeps the memories of, trying not to swear, a decent man alive. Yeah. Hmm. I think that's really nice as well. Kind of respect his memory. And yeah. the reason why you give it as well is they kind of, not the best fighter, but the kind of the glue to your gym, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, it's yeah. cool that you know, even say when when a time comes, guy, when you have to step back from the gym and the gym potentially still survives, it might yeah. be a tradition that continues after that, which is amazing as well. Yeah, so I think I, that's absolutely. that's really absolutely, cool. Yeah, it's in it's in the it's in the nuts and bolts of the gym. Yeah, yeah, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't doesn't need me around anymore. Actually, <laughs> so, Tim doesn't need me around anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you've got you've got plenty of uh, of energy in you, and and we we will touch upon that uh, a bit later because I have a, a a question about about that. But I, another thing that I'm really you know what, what I want to ask you about is that it seems to me that Grip House feels like a family the the gym really has a, a family vibe at least you know in my very short period of time that i was i trained uh at the gym itself not just uh, at university when you when you taught us um it seemed like there was a definitely a family vibe and what would you attribute that to because i think part of it is like you as a person also that comes through um but how do you think you know, you make a, a gym into a family. Do, do you have an answer to that? That's a hard one because we've gone through, I've still got people training with us. The, the last night, uh, it was the first night back sparring. Oh man, how good was that? I, like 15 months, 15 months. <laughs> sparring since I was like 15 years old. I, I did it 15 months off. That was murder. So last night there was, Two guys in there that I used to train with in Strike Force, you know, like so oh man, like 96, 97. They were still there. So we've got we've got people who've been with us a long time. Having said that, we've also got people that have left us, you know, like I, I think the thing with families is real families, real families grow up and leave home, real families will fall out, real families will get divorced. And as much as real families have really good stuff going on, uh, I totally get it as a as a grown-up and an adult, sometimes people need to leave. So um, I, I think the things I've always tried to do is be as fair as possible. Mm. I, I think as well, we don't, we don't, we don't indulge in the uniform thing. I, you know, I, it's always something we're really uncomfortable with. I, yeah, <laughs> we, we have this, we talk about this quite a lot. I recently tried to join a jujitsu gym and they've required me to buy their gi and yeah. I, yeah. But yeah, yeah, go go ahead. That, Sorry. That. So I think when people walk in, you don't you don't get this kind of chronic sense of hierarchy going on. Yeah. You know, there's no bowing or scraping. The only way you show respect in a a gym like Grip is by training hard. That yeah. that's the only thing we ask. You don't call me sense. You don't call me crew. Uh, any of that crap. If you don't want to call me guy, call me coach. If you feel uncomfortable. But even even coach is becoming a term I hate. It's become <laughs> mm. the new sensey. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, coach, such and such, coach, such and such. Like, guys, it's not a job. It's a calling. It's a, it's a lifestyle choice. You know, it's like, hey, surf Bob. You're yeah. like, Bob likes to go surfing. I like coaching. Don't don't call me coach. It's funny you do the accent, though, because that is like a very Americanization of martial arts. Yeah. Whole, yeah yes, yeah, coach. Hands in the middle, doing all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, sir, yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all thing. Uniforms are for the army. So mm. these guys don't kill each other. You know, it's like, it's, it's a gym, it's a sport. You know, we don't all need to dress the same. And likewise, I think the, the temptation is you just carbon copy your fighters as well. Like everybody's built different. Everybody's got a different mentality. You can't, you can't make people move the same, nor, nor should you try as a coach. So yeah, there's no uniforms. Uh, maybe that makes people feel a little more at ease. You're not made to feel like a complete beginner because you've got your... Uh, your beginner's t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> your yeah. Beginner's belt, your beginner's shorts on. I, I remember walking out, I remember walking out of Thai class and being really confused because I had white shorts on and I didn't realize in the UK this was a thing. But apparently it was. And the coach came up to me and went, Oh, are you taking the class? 
And me really naively says, well, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking maybe this guy's really busy. Maybe something's just happened. I don't know. Uh, like he knew it was coming. Uh, and then he realized he was pointing at my shorts and going, why are you wearing instructor shorts? I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm oh, wow. really sorry. I have no idea. <laughs> and apparently white gloves and white shorts was, was like an instructor only. Oh, thing. yeah. Oh, wow. like, I've never heard of that. Actually, fuck, is that a thing? Um, and then there was the black belts in Muay Thai. And you're like, what? Yeah, that, <laughs> that's because interesting. You know, a belt around a pair of tie shorts looks ridiculous apart from anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wasn't comfortable with it. I, but I don't like the establishment particularly. I don't like... Uh, I don't like getting told what to do. But there's something quite <laughs> cash cow about it, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's awesome. Buy my gear, come to my gradings, I'll give you my black belt. And it's you like what? There used to 30 pounds. What, 10, 10 gradings between white belt and black belt and taekwondo? Now there's like 20? Yeah. Like, oh, I see where you're going with this. Yeah. <laughs> a, lot of people, a lot of people quit after they get their black belt. So you want to eke as much money out of them as possible until they get to that point where they yeah. then leave your gym and then you just recycle the next lot through. Uh, that does my head in, which is why I don't drive around in America with TKD1. Yeah. On the veggie plate. There's a big post about that the other day. It's like, why is it we tag one guys? All the coaches are running around with private regies with some format of TKD. And it's like, all that says to me is you're charging me too much money for my kids' yeah. class. You know, yeah. I, I, it says their belt structure is 30 bills. People know the deal when they sign up. I'm not going to criticize it's a it's just another business model, but it's it's not ours. It's not ours. There's something I want to come back to what you said a minute ago, which I really resonate with and appreciated what you said was you can't teach everybody the same. Not all people move the same and you can't expect them to. I've noticed kind of coach, and my theory is there's a lot of people now getting into coaching who don't have the right experience to be a coach. They're kind of quite short in their career, short in their training experience, and then just try and teach the way they know onto other people. Now you're more than well-versed in terms of tenure and experience. And what's your thoughts on that in terms of, this kind of very narrow-minded view. Do you reckon it is immaturity in coaches or people uh, jumping yeah. in too soon? I don't know. I think probably a lot of it is because it's... Uh, and I understand why. There's there's folk that want to do... I want to do this full-time. Mm. How am I going to do that? Oh, well, I can coach. I'll, I'll, I'll teach what I'm doing. Then I can get my own gym and then I won't have to hold down this shitty job that drives me mental. But I need it to pay for my coaching fees. So I think there's probably, I think there's quite a lot of that. I think there's maybe some naivety on how well you're going to be able to coach. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think it's from the know-it-all point of view. It's like, oh, well, I'm a fucking expert. I've had an inter-club. I, <laughs> there's a few of them. <laughs> there's a fair Actually, few. Yeah, there's, there's a few. I, I thought a guy once just to share a story in an inter-club who turned up with a hundred people and a professional photographer <laughs> Dude, we've got a guy that proposed to his girlfriend after an inner club. Oh I'm wow! Names, but you're like, holy <laughs> shit, that's that's pretty full on, man. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, you got full like inner clubs, and they're calling them fights, and you're like, no, it yeah. wasn't. No, it's, it's so really not, not. Man. There's, no, there's no fucking comparison. Uh, inner clubs are really useful; they're great tools. Uh, yeah. But fuck me, don't don't tell me that's a fight because mm. it's not. I. Yeah, yeah, the I, interclubbers, interclub coaches, who knew? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the, I think one of the problems is if you've got a guy that's setting himself up as an MMA coach, 
mm-hmm. uh, with a short training span, a short competitive span, that's when you're going to just start turning out generic copycat fighters of that coach. Um, Cause they maybe don't, they maybe not got the experience. Like as much as I'm involved fairly heavily with the MMA squad at the grip house over the last kind of 15 years, um, it's as a Muay Thai guy having to make adjustments to striking for MMA. Um, yeah. I don't teach grappling. I've mm. got these amazing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu coaches and wrestling coaches. So they're doing the grappling. I mean, like I've got, I've got 30 years of stand-up striking experience. My BJJ coach have got 20, 30 years of BJJ. Our MMA coaches have got 15, 16 years of putting all that shit that we've got together. Yeah. Therefore, we create really well-rounded MMA fighters. You know, you, uh, you can't be a one-trick pony anymore. And I've mm. maybe only got like a few years in the in the bag is maybe not going to be able to provide that level of, this isn't working for you. You should maybe try this. Or like, you're fucking built like Mike Zambides. Where are you trying yeah. to kick everyone's head? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you're coming in as the uh, the striking consultant. You come um, in as so, a striking consultant to say, look, this will work better for you in a striking perspective. You're not yeah, kind of yeah. trying to jump into yeah. any of the other. I mean, bits. never mind MMA, even in Muay Thai, you've got guys that are, they're knee fighters. You've got guys that are heavy yeah. punchers and low kickers like uh, Anua, boxer, uh, Ponsonet, Boston low kick. Uh, you've got all the clinch guys, all the knee guys. Uh, even in the UK, you've got like, like Josh Turbo was a brilliant English fighter. He made a career of just kneeing people to death. Yeah. Like, that, was his, that was his thing. Like, it's his style, right? It's the Muay, Muay Kao or whatever. Yeah, the yeah, name yeah. Is. yeah, yeah. Like, so then if you combine that into MMA, like Dominic Cruz and fair play to him, he's, he's released his footwork drills uh, as a kind of buy my product thing. Mm. Um, but Dominic Cruz revolutionized footwork and MMA, like without a doubt, he was this always the lightest guy in the fight. So he couldn't stand there and trade in the pocket. That made no sense for him. Um, he was footwork. So one of our guys, uh, this, I think this is brilliant as a, a presence of mind to be able to do this. Um, Robert Whiteford, who was like the first Scot to get into the UFC. Um, yeah. Robert, for I think five weeks, for five days a week, did five five-minute rounds like every day, just footwork. Just, nothing, didn't throw a punch, didn't throw a kick, just footwork. Throwing his body around, throwing his head around. So he knew no matter what position he's in, he's not getting wrong-footed. Yeah. Um, but just see, see that presence of mind to be able to do that. You're talking like five fives, five days a week for five weeks. Yeah, that that, that which is one of, the Robert, <laughs> one of the reasons Robert ended up in the UFC. You know, you, yeah. you can't, you can't. There's something you can't coach. Hmm. You, know, like you can give a guy pointers, but if he's not going to do them, uh, right. whereas he was, he was just moving his feet. He's just shuffling about that cage for like for five weeks. Like Robert, what the fuck are you doing? I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? And he's like, I'm going to the UFC, and you're like. Yeah, actually, yeah, you probably are. <laughs> and it's Amazing. those little details that really do make a difference. Oh, 100%. Man. Like I had a guy switching last night. He's been working on switching. And every time he switched to Southpaw, he's leaving his right foot inside the other guy's left foot. And he's just getting swept left, right, and center. And the guy's on him with his left hand. He's like, what's going on? You're like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> like it's fundamental basis of a southpaw your foot can't be there and if you're going to be a switcher you, you need to know that you need to be able to move that out of the way so it's wee things like that but if you get on doing that for the next four or five weeks that might have been a really hard habit to then hmm. break so you need to see stuff like that straight away and go fix that that's, that's like right. fundamental 
Right. Uh, and again, that's like, I guess, I suppose years of experience and seeing a situation going, I know exactly why that's happening. I, I don't even need to look at his feet. So when I did look at his feet, like, there's confirmation, right? Boom. Change this. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what your view is um, as we sort of speak about um, having sort of different disciplines and um, training, training MMA sort of uh, in, to some extent in split disciplines. So one of the things that, for example, like someone like Dan Hardy talks about is that he, he thinks that we're getting, we're going to get to a point where MMA is taught as like a martial art, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, yeah. What yeah, is your view on that? Do you think that's possible? Because we, we've talked about it on our podcast before where we think it's quite difficult to do that. And it's to some extent, you do have to train things separately. But I wonder what your take on it is. I, I think you only need to look at the peaks and troughs and popularity of MMA, particularly UFC is a good, a good benchmark for that, to see that MMA occasionally goes through phases where the guys just neutralize each other mm-hmm. and it stops being that interesting. They've neutralized each other in the stand-up. They've neutralized each other on the ground. So the guys, the outliers that start winning are the guys that are throwing the jump shit maverick stuff or are back to being exceptionally good at this one thing that they do. Mm. But they've got the basics and everything else, so they can still stuff a takedown. They can use jiu-jitsu to get back on their feet or to get a better position on top. Um, but MMA is in danger, again, if you've just got your MMA coach, is in danger of becoming, you have to cover so much, you can't cover all. So what are you covering? Then you start covering this syllabus, if you like, that becomes this martial art called MMA, which is no longer mm-hmm. MMA, because you're not aiming your MAs. You're doing <laughs> this kind of high, hybrid style all on its own, right? And again, right. it's only going to take one outlier throwing like uh jones was like that jones yeah. just started spinning elbows and going mental with his elbows and i was like holy shit yeah. we, don't need to deal with that. we don't know how to deal with that because well my mma guy never fought muay thai he doesn't know how to throw a fucking elbow yeah. or you know like uh there's there's all these things going on so i think like mcgregor was an outlier jones was an outlier uh the the very fast evolution transition uh when we had the grapplers suddenly getting superseded by the wrestlers and then mm-hmm. the wrestlers got found out because people started to learn how to sprawl and then the strikers kind of got the ascendancy again for a little bit and mm-hmm. then the hybrid guys started to take over and then it just got really fucking boring right. and then after the boring <laughs> the boring years with a lot of footwork and nobody getting KO'd uh, the maverick guys with the, the turns and the spins and the jumps started to appear and if you've not got a guy in your gym that can replicate that, you you can't prepare for a guy that's going to do that to you in a fight. I mean, God knows we've tried. Like uh, some of our guys have been fighting really unorthodox fighters. I uh, like when Keith Keith fought uh, Muay Thai against Paul Karpowitz, who, who we've mentioned, who's like this uber athlete. And we're like, hmm. how the how the fuck do you prepare <laughs> like a guy like that? Because nobody in the gym is throwing that crazy crazy ass shit that he's throwing. Yeah. And ultimately, the way to prep for that fight was to be so tight in your meat and potatoes Muay Thai yeah. that he's not going to land anything right. with all that mad shit because you're, right. you're, you're absolutely on point with how you're going to score and how you're going to defend yourself. Uh, yeah. And again, this is back to why I love Muay Thai as a system 
it has so many more answers than a lot of the other striking mm. systems. Um, what the fuck were we talking about again? No, you were, you were totally well, on the right MMA, wavelength. Well, MMA becoming a style in its own right yeah. will, be the, will be the death of MMA. I, I, I would actually we'll totally agree we'll with that. I think what we see it, people like, you know, I, a person that I look, look at quite often is like Israel Adesanya. Like yeah. these people, the reason why they're so successful is because actually they're just very good at this one thing. Um, yeah. but they have the meat and potatoes of the other things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, enough at the other things. Right, they're, they're, they're decent enough. I mean, right, of course, there are some holes like, you know, when Jan Bahovic took him down, people are now saying, oh, you know, that's it. They found him out, but that was also, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but reality is, you know, there was a lot of other factors like size difference and all these other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think yeah, I think it's the thing of like you said, and to kind of I don't know, maybe repeat back what you just said. But the unless you have a perfect style, which is mixed martial arts, there's always going to be something that can then succeed it and beat it because you're always yeah. going to be able to find a hole. And yeah, I mean, means- what what happens is there's an MMA style that's perfect martial art. Then mm-hmm. a guy that's just religiously been doing combat sambo jumps on your leg and rips it clean off. Yeah. Because nobody in your gym was as good as this guy was at ripping people's legs off. Exactly, yeah. No, you know, I, I like think... You, I, I still believe to build good MMA, you need quality grapplers around you, you need quality strikers around you, right. and you need the MMA coaches to know how to blend that. Um, right. You know, like, we, we'll send our MMA guys into the jiu-jitsu room to roll nogi. There you go. There's some guys that really know how to grapple. Mm-hmm. All right, into the tie room. Go do some stand-up with people that really know how to fight. Mm. Um, uh, particularly, you know, if you know you're going up against like uh, maybe a strong kicker, get in a Muay Thai gym because these guys, yeah. these guys fucking love kicks. A body yeah. kick, low kick, and head kick you all night. Um, <laughs> and that's super important because if you're working your own personal game and say you're, I love fast hands and uh, shooting doubles. All right, so see the guy you're training with, your mate. He's up against a really strong kicker next couple of months so how's how's that going to help him yeah uh, well it's not i so yeah go go, on, go get the tie boxers okay go get go get the nogi guys go get the wrestlers uh you're doing your shit with them for the next two months until you sharpen up on an aspect of what you need to cover if you don't have access to those people if you've only got access to a whole bunch of people doing mma that spent two years learning how to throw their hands two years learning how to grapple two years learning how to throw their legs when you've got a room full of people who've been throwing their legs in their hands for 15 20 years there's no there's no there's no comparison right um so as much as the mma is like the uh that little kind of group of people that have to flow between two groups constantly getting holes shown in their game that can only make them better yeah right which is ultimately what mma is about it's about competitive athletic fighting um so yeah you you need access to these pools of expertise and, and all the areas you need and then we haven't even started in strength and conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another that's another thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But um, I've got a bit of a wild card question regarding um, like what's been going on in, in MMA recently, which is calf kicks. Um, and it's <laughs> and uh, specifically um specifically you know well not specifically but you know we we know what happened recently with McGregor. Um, yep. I don't want to debate what happened there and, and the, there's been a ton of uh, good analysis on that, but I'm curious, you know, as a Thai boxer myself, um, Lee as well, being a Thai boxer, you know, 
calf kicks, they aren't like such a massive thing in Thai boxing, even though we're the ones that throw the most low kicks. Um, what is that about? Is this about because people in MMA don't so, train Thai boxing in terms properly? Of striking, if there's something not getting thrown in Muay Thai, my first question is why not? Yeah. Right. If, if calf kicks are really good, why are they not getting thrown in Muay Thai? So I think first thing is they do get thrown in Muay Thai. Yeah. They just don't get thrown a lot in Muay Thai because the minute you point your foot and splay it out very slightly, calf kick's not there. You're yeah. just going to yeah. get in the near the shin. So if your foot's turned in like a boxer, you calf kick that guy all day. Yeah. Out, straight out, it's still wrong in Muay Thai, really. Uh, it'll work for MMA, but you're still going to have to angle it to get a check on it. But if your foot's out there, like, I always say, like, uh, for good Muay Thai, you kind of want your feet at two minutes to two, not mm-hmm. two o'clock dead. And if you've got that front foot very slightly splayed, the calf kick's not even a thing. They would have to move around you in such a big arc to get access to your calf that you'd have all the time in the world to block it. That's uh, funny you say that because I saw a video of Damien Trainer and it was like yeah, a really yeah, pixelated yeah. video and the calf kick was a counter when you've moved somebody off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that whole big Muay Thai sweep where you basically low kick both legs but you yeah. have to arc around them to do it, and you go one hand yeah. over their chest, and then you just kick them right off their feet. Essentially, that's a kind of calf kick, because mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you are going really low on the leg. Uh, you're striking that area, but you've moved around in an arc, so in a Muay Thai stance, you have access to their calf, uh, but it's quite a big movement. Um, and in MMA, it works because guys are sitting with their front foot forward or very slightly turned in in like a boxer stance, uh, in which case, yeah, calf kicks are, are a are an, an opportunistic thing. Right, um, right. Yeah, th- there's reasons in Muay Thai they don't happen very often. And for me, the reason is a uh, good Muay Thai stance makes it so risky. You're just going to smash your shin off their knee, your shin off their shin, and the wrong bit of your shin off their shin. Yeah, yeah. Is that why that's so you, random kind of just thought that has come to my head? Is that why you think a lot of um, leg breaks are happening more recently in MMA in terms yeah, of. Very possibly. I mean, like, uh, a lot of the leg breaks have happened when there's been that collision with the knee or the top yep. of the shin, which is obviously the thicker part. Mm. Um, but I also wonder, because it's happened to a couple of our guys over the years. Um, Sean Rice, one of, one of our guys, he was brilliant. Uh, he shattered his leg really badly, but he went into that fight with a, just a slight niggling thing mm. going on in his leg. And it turns out he very possibly had a hairline fracture that mm. normally you'd ignore but he can kick so hard that it was a straw that broke the camel's shin. Yeah. Uh, and he smashed the kick. The guy, you know that way of blocking that's is super effective, but it's a little risky, that you don't actually take your foot off the floor. You just press your knee up, but you're still in contact with the floor. So your shin is going nowhere. There's no little bend yeah. on it. There's no flex. Um, and they just kind of like pop upright a little bit and jam mm. that knee out and you're crack on top of it. That base you've just hit is going nowhere. If you get anything going on in your leg, uh, same with yeah. McGregor, you know, like you look at what his front kick, it hit, fired his elbow first. Yeah. That, that could have been what did the damage, you know, he, yeah. or, he have, or he could have had like a pre-existing uh, hairline fracture going on from training. Uh, yeah. That would just be a niggle. You wouldn't even notice it normally until you then smash it as hard as you can against somebody's planted foot. Yeah, I saw an analysis by this orthopedic surgeon and he was saying that the cause was most likely that some sort of previous uh injury which then 
over the time of the fight, there were a few instances. There, was, there wasn't just one instance. There was a few instances, yeah, one of them is. being that front kick, which potentially could have then made it worse, worse and worse, and then eventually creating the break. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, we, I think we forget, like, you, you see it in Muay Thai quite a lot. Uh, is It's not like one kick. It's a succession of kicks, say, on a boxer's arms. Mm-hmm. That eventually lead to a broken arm. It's not like one kick broke his arm. I mean, that, that can happen as well, but it's generally like, my God, that guy's been getting kicked for three rounds and he basically can't move his arms. And it's like, yeah, and they're broken. Uh, right. Because eventually yeah. it will give way. It's not like kick break. It's like kick, 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 stop. Done. Yeah. To be fair, I'm, I'm a southpaw, so I did oh. most of my early fighting as left kick to the right arm just to stop right arm, counting. Right arm, yeah. Stop getting punched. Yeah. yeah. Well, thing, if, you, if you want a guy to stop punching with the right hand, you kick yeah. with your, like, your left leg. Yeah, I didn't like yeah. being punched. I got really good at left kicking to the arm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had the guy find a guy with a notorious right hand. Uh, I said the first thing you do is scalp him in the face with a left eye kick. Yeah. And the guy glued his right hand to his head for the rest of the rest of the <laughs> I know, I know I could nerd out about Muay Thai all day, but I think Same. there's a question in my heart I need to ask about. And uh, Alex pointed it out to me, and you're not going to get away without talking to us about it. Um, I went to a show a couple of years ago in London um, with all the medieval fighting. <laughs> now, I've seen on your Instagram, and I saw how brutal it was that day. Yeah. How the hell did that happen? So... Right, here's the weird thing. I've been doing that stuff for years, but it was always seen as a little bit Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. So, that. <laughs> so what do you guys do after training? Like like swap stories about craft ale and all that. And who's going to be Gandalf this weekend? We're going to knock out with a mace. <laughs> so, um, we kind of kept under wraps. Yeah, it's a bit, it was a bit geeky, a bit uh, Lord of the Rings, but it's a fight. I mean, you've seen it. It's, it's an actual fucking full-on fight. Um. And the reason I went to the Master Woody Toddy seminar is I'd been given some visiting Thai ambassadors a demo on uh, Scottish fighting, like broadsword, Scottish broadsword, uh, Lachaberax, all that kind of stuff, uh, that we've been studying, studying for years. And then two things happened in the last 20 years. HEMA, which is Europeans desperately trying to rediscover their martial heritage and looking back at old fighting manuals. And it goes way back, like, there's stuff in the 1400s, like really well documented fighting manuals with mm. amazing old woodcut pictures of the guys with pointy shoes stabbing each other in the face. It's, it's brilliant. <laughs> uh, and then the medieval armored combat thing started. And then I think it hit a lot of popularity when Eddie Hall got involved in it. Ah, uh, fair it's enough. called Night Fight. Right. Uh, and people start to look at this and go, whoa, holy fuck, what, what actually is this? And then the of course the Russians love it and the Poles love it and the Ukrainians and the, the scandals. Uh, they love this because it's very Northern European, yes. Yeah. Uh, so they have embraced it. Um, in Serbia last year, they trialed for the first time at 150 v 150 people in a field in full armour with all the weapons beating Jesus. each other to a point of exhaustion or unconsciousness. Jesus. Uh, it, it's, it's bonkers, man. It's bonkers, it's... It's harder cardio in a Muay Thai fight. I know people find that very hard to believe, but you basically got 30 kilos of metal on you, swinging right. two or three kilos of metal and breathing in your own CO2 and a whole lot of heat. Um, like yeah. two minutes and you're beginning to panic. You're like, I need out of this armor. This is, this is killing me. I have no idea 
how mentally and physically strong they must have been back then. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I have no idea what the fuck they thought they were doing going off to the Holy Land, the Middle East, where it's like 35 degrees and there's yeah. no water. Blading off in their suits of armor. It's just, just beggar's yeah. belief, man. Beggar's belief. It makes it makes like a Muay Thai and MMA almost look like a playground games. Mm. <laughs> Fair enough. what people would used to kind of have to have to do, but I I guess that's a good thing. We live in that society now and not not don't yeah. have to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, would, yeah, I wouldn't last very long. I'll be honest. I've got yeah. to I've got to. We, we got involved with the the armored stuff. I for me it was to give it a chance to not be seen as something a little bit geeky. It was like, yep. hang on, the grip house. They're they're an MMA gym, a really good rep. What the fuck are they doing dressing up as Aragorn? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I've always dressed up as Aragorn on the weekend, so fuck you. <laughs> you know? um, I, um, so, I've got to ask how how have the injuries been with it? Have you had any kind of weird and wonderful injuries with it? Because I, I know what on the day I went, somebody got bashed kind of across the head and they would spark out and it was kind oh, of like a Oh shit, he's gone. Well, the, big, the biggest problem when somebody is knocked out, they've still got a helmet on. So you don't know if they're actually knocked out or they're just falling over and they're all right. Oh. I, I go, you've got a helmet on, you can't hear what they're saying anyway. So, yeah. Okay. You get some com- comedy moments where you go down and make sure he's all right, then somebody bundles into you, you fall on top of the dead guy, two other guys trip over you and fall over. And before you know it, there's like six bodies in the floor, three are unconscious, and three are like, help. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, a pretty stupid sport. <laughs> it's, great fun. it's absolutely great fun where do you like i'm actually curious where do you get the um, the gear from like do you are there other well, places 80 percent the training is called like soft kit training so it's just like regular boxing head guards uh softer weapons we just use tie pads for shields but they're, they're perfect you're, you're kind of used to having this thing in your arm anyway i um the stuff still wax oh there's the other thing see the the armor combat is really like Muay Thai in the way it's scored. It's, a, it's about effects. So if you throw like a really shitty blow, it, it just doesn't count at all. Right. Uh, and you can use your shield offensively. So you're literally throwing like jab, 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 hook with a shield and a massive overhand right with like a, a sword and an axe. So it, it, it translates really, really well. Low kicks are totally a thing. Calf kicks are totally yeah. a thing because you get metal legs. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like the ultimate shin guard. Um, and then the French guys... They've got some like specialists. They're amazing. They've got guys that realize that the weapons are a softer form of steel than the armor. So if you can hit a guy really hard with your armor, you're going to be able to hit them harder. So there's a wee French guy who's like the French ninja who can jump knee people in a 30 kilo suit of armor. Wow. And he jumped knee them right in the head and like, boom, lights out. It's <laughs> amazing. Sorry, I'm going to sound young. It's insane. <laughs> Some athleticism, oh. though, to jump with a 30 kilo weight on. Oh, yeah, man, it's, it's, it's outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. That's incredible. Wow. That actually sounds like a lot of fun, to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> it, sounds petrifying. it sounds absolutely petrifying. I think I wouldn't do it just through fear. <laughs> <laughs> I've been injured worse than my day. Yeah. 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 I mean, the armor, the arm, so the. Uh, sorry to answer the actual question rather than just <laughs> talk, talk, talking in <laughs> It's okay. Uh, Eastern European uh, handmade stuff. Uh, these guys have been making this stuff for years. They, they've been they've been involved. They never saw it as a like a geeky thing. They're they're almost reclaiming cultural heritage. Yeah, uh, we are Slavic. We are Viking. We are Teutonic. Yeah, I'm. I'm uh, I, I don't know if you remember, but I'm Polish. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, like, oh man, like the 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 Russians and the Poles were doing like the M1 medieval. Yeah. Uh, like the the crazy like dueling, um, which is like MMA but with 
with swords and shields. Right. So you can take down, you can fight on the ground. And, uh, yeah, yeah we've so re- they, they recreate, there's a very famous battle um, of Grunwald uh, yeah. and they, they recreate those battles every year or used to anyway, not, not sure about now, but yeah, we, they, they, yeah, Polish people. And that, and that's, that was never seen as geeky, as you say. That was yeah. that that was always seen as like, oh yeah, we're back to our heritage, you know, yeah, showing yeah, yeah. so yeah, it's, yeah it's I used to work with a guy and I relentlessly took the piss out of him for doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a funny thing to do. It's like a, a definitely a niche thing. Yeah. yeah. I, um, like we've got guys at the gym that do Muay Thai and MMA and they look in and go like you guys are fucking nuts <laughs> which is exactly what I used to think about people that were doing Muay Thai when I was doing karate I was like you guys are fucking nuts yeah <laughs> I'm in jail <laughs> so yeah it's just some people like skateboarding some people like putting sure. on armor and beating the shit out of somebody else with armor it's all good oh, it sounds like you um, found the right niche then <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure if, um, Lee, do you have uh, any other questions? I think we're close to an hour, so I also don't want to take more of Guy's time. But That's it. I think we, we've kind of kept him in the hot box of his van long enough, I think. Dude, I've got the AC on. I'm loving this. That's what I felt. You know, I, I, went to a, I, I went to a supermarket this morning and I had my AC on and I was like, Oh, I could just stay here for the rest yeah, of the day. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> See, I've got. Sorry, sorry guys, I won't, be, I won't be in the thirty degree gym tonight. I've got a very important Zoom. <laughs> yeah. So I've got soft oh, now. Look, it's, I... cool, it's cool down to twenty-seven. It's cool down to twenty-seven. <laughs> yeah, I, I moved down to London from Manchester a few years ago, so Ooh. I've gone soft now. So I train. Yeah, in gyms. Yeah, yeah. I train in gyms with aircon. I'm not in a rundown mill anymore. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I just want to say, kind of the Muay Thai nerd in me and kind of thank you for giving us some time and to kind of have some real good chats about Muay Thai and the world of martial arts. I really enjoyed this one. Magic. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kai. Happy to be on board. We can, we, maybe we can, we can do another one in the future, uh, choose something specific and have a chat because it's great to chat to you. You're, um, what's that? Sorry. Just saying thank you. No, no. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I've, I, I really, um, have appreciated that short period of time that I've spent, uh, getting trained by you guys. It was, it was some of the best, uh, coaching that I've received, to be honest. So that's cool of you to say so. And you know, it was all brought to you by coffee and Danish, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I'm ever back in Glasgow, I'll, I'll sure, I'll sure to, uh, I'll be sure to come, uh, hopefully you guys got a training that That'd night. Cool, man. You're, not, you're always welcome, huh? Awesome. We hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to the podcast and checking us out on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram under the name Combat Thoughts. We'll see you next time. <laughs>